Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And I was in such physical, emotional, and psychological torment and pain that I looked up and saw the vial of morphine and almost intuitively just drew up, I think it was a milligram of it, and just put it straight into my arm and instantly felt better. And that really was the, the pivoting point. Now that, necess- that doesn't necessarily mean that one goes on to the journey that I went on, which was a nine year total unraveling, going further and further and further and further and further down to the point where nine years later, I'm living in a bus shelter in London, the archetypal street junkie. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
my beautiful friend, if you suffer from anxiety and are sick of all the ways it's taking over your life, please take a look at Panic Away. For over 10 years now, Panic Away has been showing people how to break anxious patterns and get their old carefree self back, the person they were before anxiety ruled their life. Panic Away shows you how to break the anxiety loop and it gives your nervous system a chance to relax. It's totally drug-free and highly successful and it helps people with all levels of anxiety. Panic Away comes with a full money-back guarantee so you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's time to take back control of your life, your happiness and your freedom. A life free of anxiety is like living an entirely different life. Click the link in the show notes for access to Panic Away. Hey, my beautiful friends, welcome back to the podcast for 2023. I hope your year has gotten off to a great start. I hope you are refreshed and excited for the possibilities of 2023. I'm not one to make New Year's resolutions. I feel that forcing ourselves to come up with a bunch of rules that we want to live by for the year, it's not really in alignment with the way that I want to live my life. But I do open myself up and allow myself to feel into the possibilities of what I want and where I want to go for the new year. So if you feel this pressure to stick to a bunch of resolutions, just breathe and take a moment to feel energetically into what your heart really wants this year. What would make your heart sing? What would make you so happy to get out of bed every day? And feel into that. Give yourself permission to feel that and allow that. I have a few things that I really want for 2023, but in terms of this podcast, I want to blow it up. I've spent the past couple of years building this podcast and now I want to explode it because so many people are missing the facts that what happens to us as kids changes us, changes our relationships changes our ability to show up in the ways that we want to show up, changes how we raise our own kids and therefore the cycle of abuse and judgment and hate and trauma, it all continues on and on. We must have these difficult conversations, these real, raw and honest conversations so that we can change it. So that our time here on earth isn't just marking time, it's having an impact. And so here's to another year full of important stories of ordinary people who are also extraordinary and incredible and who must be heard. And secondly, for 2023, I really want to bring more awareness to the ways that you can really heal from past trauma. And so I'm going to be launching my new mental health blog next week. It's called Heal. So please listen in next week to hear more about that. Our very first episode for 2023 is with Dr. Reshi Joseph. 
Reshi seemingly had it all before his life completely broke down. Reshi grew up in England. He had an upper middle class upbringing in London. He attended the best schools and universities. He graduated medical school and he was essentially living a great life. But within nine years of graduating, Reshi was living as a street junkie in a London bus shelter. How does that even happen? That's the exact question that Reshi asked himself. Once he got sober and drug free, Reshi just couldn't understand how he found himself in this downward spiral. And he started looking for answers. But as he started his healing journey and he spoke to professionals in the mental health space, so many of the answers given to him to the questions he had around why just weren't satisfactory to Reshi. They just didn't make sense. And it wasn't until Reshi uncovered research that explained that what happens to us in childhood is the reason for addiction and other behaviours that he'd experienced that he really began to understand his own journey. Dr. Reshi Joseph has just released his incredible new book, A Beginner's Guide to Trauma, Understanding the Toxic Effects of the Disorders of Extreme Stress. And it is everything you need to know about trauma in one book. Dr. Reshi wrote this book because he felt that no other book explained trauma in simple terms. Essentially, it's the book that he needed to read when he started his own journey to wellness. If you are on a healing journey, you must get yourself a copy of this book. You can click the link in the show notes to buy your copy right now. Dr. Reshi Joseph is sharing some incredible insights into trauma and I can guarantee you will learn things about trauma you have never ever heard before in this conversation. I know I certainly did. Please join me now for my chat with Dr. Reshi Joseph. Dr. Reshi Joseph, you are a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of PTSD, complex psychological trauma, addictions and other disorders of extreme stress. I'm really excited for this chat and I'm looking forward to hearing your insights into trauma and its effects on us throughout our lifetimes and just drilling down on this very important topic. I know you didn't start out as a psychologist. Can you tell us why you decided to study psychology and what drove that decision? Hi, Dawn, and thank you for that very generous introduction. Very good question to start with. So for those of you who don't know, I didn't start professional life off as a psychologist. I started my professional life as a physician and I was on a short track to becoming a surgeon like my father. On the surface of it, it's a puzzling story because I went to good schools, got very good grades. Well, you have to get very good grades to get into medical school anyway seemed like a very well-adjusted child, got into medical school, got through medical school, graduated medical school, started working as a, as a doctor. But that's when the interesting things begin to happen. And that's when the wheels begin to come off my life, okay? 
So when I say the wheels begun to come off my life, I find myself in a situation where I'm no longer able to self-regulate, self-soothe. I'm confronted on a daily basis with death and dying, which all doctors are. That's part of it. But it was a combination of circumstances that came together that caused what I now refer to as the great unraveling. And the great unraveling really started with a single event, which I adumbrate in the book. I was doing a stint on pediatric oncology and I'd made the sort of classic rookie mistake of becoming very emotionally close to a young boy who was dying of a rare cancer. Like he enjoyed the same sort of obscure comics that I did and I would bring in you know, graphic novels for him to read and we would talk about the exploits of this, you know, ancient Celtic barbarian and I won't bore you with the details, but we got very close and I was not psychologically prepared for the fact that this boy was not going to live for very long. And when his death inevitably came, I was not psychologically prepared to deal with it. And I talk about sitting beside his bed and he obviously was gone because he'd passed on. And it was an oncology ward, so there were vials of morphine absolutely everywhere, including next to his bedside. And I was in such physical, emotional and psychological torment and pain that I looked up and saw the vial of morphine and almost intuitively just drew up I think it was a milligram of it and just put it straight into my arm and instantly felt better. and that really was the the pivoting point now that that doesn't necessarily mean that one goes on to the journey that I went on which was a nine year total unraveling going further and further and further and further and further down to the point where nine years later i'm living in a bus shelter in london the archetypal street junkie now i came into recovery got clean you know off the street drugs and alcohol and all that in 2011 and I'm happy to say I've not returned to that life since but the question that I wanted answered was I'd always thought that addicts drug addicts in particular were people that came from rough neighborhoods violent fathers you know fathers who'd been to prison gangsterism you know, the sort of poor socioeconomic circumstances, you know, no access to education, you know, a lot of violence, that sort of thing, right? And I definitely didn't fit that mold. I didn't come from that background. I came from an upper middle class background. I went to the best schools. I went to the best universities. I was highly educated. I had a classical education in England. And I had a career right in front of me, 
And the question I wanted to answer was, how could something like this happen to someone like me? There was absolutely no reason for it. And that was what got me interested in this subject. 18 months into my recovery, 18 months into being clean and sober, there was an episode where I went into one of the symptoms of trauma called hyperarousal, where I felt so threatened that I completely smashed up a room, okay? Completely smashed it to bits. Now, I remember coming out of that and thinking to myself, I don't know what caused that. Don't know what, what made me do that. But I do know what didn't make me do that and what didn't have anything to do with it. And that was drugs and alcohol because I hadn't had any for almost two years. So you can't blame the drugs and the alcohol for that one because you haven't had any. It was very easy to do so before because I was always high. So you could always say, oh, I was, you know, it was the crack or it was the meth or it was the heroin or whatever it was. But once you haven't had any for almost two years, well, you haven't got that to blame. You haven't got that crutch to lean on. So now you have to sit down and think, well, if it isn't that, then what is it? And that is where my journey into trauma began. And that's an incredible story, isn't it? Going into that sort of abyss for so many years, coming out of it, and then what what happened next in that journey well what happened next was i had to look at you know the other possibilities so being a doctor naturally i gravitated to psychiatry and to medical explanations which i found to be at best unsatisfactory and at worst almost dismissive like, don't be so silly, you know, look, you had a moment, get over it, you know, just, it's a behavioral thing, which was just a very unsatisfying answer. And then I read a book called, it's, it's a terrible mistranslation of the original, but anyway, I'll give the English title, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. The original title of the book is Prisoners of Childhood. And I read this book, the drama of the gift of child and that was a light bulb moment because it seemed like she was writing about me if you don't know about alice miller she was someone who as a jew lived through the second world war you know whose every day could have been her last day went through the ghettos went through all of the humiliations that the nazi nazis inflicted on her finally escaped to Switzerland and became a psychoanalyst, eventually broke with the psychoanalyst tradition on one issue. And that issue is they don't look at the individual's childhood. And she felt, and we now know her to be correct, which is the childhood is the most important part of looking at any psychopathology because that's the period first 25 years of our life that's the period in which our brains are developing 
and whether you subscribe to the neuroscience or not, most people will agree our personalities, our capacity to regulate mood, our capacity to meet with adversity and overcome it, our stress diathesis, all of these things have to do with how we develop in childhood. And psychoanalysis simply didn't deal with that. So inadvertently, she just started off a new tradition. She said, forget all of that. We need to look at how people grew up. We need to look. And you have to remember this book was written at a time. I mean, around the same time, other books were written. R.D. Lang wrote his Divided Self. You know, there were a slew of very brilliant books that are now deemed to be anti-psychiatry or critical psychiatry, these two separate movements, but they're not really. They're just saying, look, there's a real problem when you pathologize human behavior, right? And instead of saying to someone who's behaving in a way that they don't understand, instead of saying to them, what the hell is wrong with you? It might be more useful to actually say to them, what happened to you? Can you tell me what happened to you as a kid? Because if you do, you have a much higher chance of actually understanding why they're so angry. And this was Alice Miller's great insight. And of course, not much later than that, we had the great civil rights movements of the 1960s, you know, women's liberation. We had the civil rights movement for the emancipation of blacks, Martin Luther King. We had the anti-war movement. And all of these culminated to put so much pressure <clears throat> on the medical establishment. And of course, a lot of psychologists who gathered so much data on the soldiers returning from Vietnam, that it was beyond dispute that human beings could be wounded just as badly in a psychological capacity as they could be wounded in a physical capacity. The evidence had become overwhelming and in the teeth of their opposition, post-traumatic stress disorder was included in the diagnostic categories for the very first time in 1980. And Dr. Christine Coutois, who's one of the leading traumatologists today, there's a quote from her that I include in my book and she says, that is a very, very key moment. It's the first time that the medical establishment as a whole recognizes that when you apply extreme stresses, particularly to children, you end up with some really serious psychopathologies that can affect everything from general health to mental health to autoimmune conditions to risk factors for heart disease and cancer and everything, right? Yeah. So that was a key moment. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have the ACE study by Vince Folletti and Bob Ander in 1998. I'm, I know I don't have to tell you about that. But the sum total of this, I think the, the epoch of this really came in 2012 when uh, the Julius B. Richmond chair professor of pediatrics at Harvard University. I mean, you can't get higher in the medical hierarchy than 
the professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, you just can't get higher than that, wrote an article. And the title of the article is The Long-Term Effects of Toxic Stress on Children. And he, he, he laid, I mean, I quote large sections of the study in the book where he states very, very, very clearly that the human brain, the critical factor in how it develops, it's in its interaction with its environment. If you give a child a healthy environment with which to interact, it will grow up with the capacity for secure attachments, it will grow up with the capacity to form relationships that are based on authenticity, they will grow up with a fair, you know, a fair degree of self-esteem. And when I say self-esteem, I mean specifically the belief that good things happen to me as of right and now not as of consequence. In other words, I don't have to do something to get somebody to, to esteem me or to like me. That is due me as of right. They have a natural ability to set boundaries, right? They have a natural experience of reality that's healthy. They have a natural set in their relationships where there is no emotional dependency or what in the past we used to call codependency. And they have the capacity for moderation and containment, right? And they all say the same thing, whether it's Gabo Mate or whether it's Bessel van der Kolk or whether it's Alice Miller or Judith Herman or any of these great names. If you want to see the pathology of human beings as they are now, look at their childhoods. Whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Vladimir Putin, whether it's yourself, whether it's me, take a close look at the childhood and you will know everything you need to know about the man. And that was the second click, if you like. And I delved into my childhood. I personally favor a Jungian approach. Some people favor the Freudian approach. Some people favor a different, you know, but that's personal choice, right? And yeah, I had to explore and answer to myself questions like, why am I so angry at my parents? Why do I hate my mother? Why do I want nothing to do with my father? You know, questions like this, you know, and I think it might have been Voltaire that said that it was either he or, or Pierre Janet that said, it's a very, very bad idea for an individual to still be angry at their parents as their parents pass. It's very unhealthy. In fact, it might have even been Jung who said it, but I think it's very likely to be Jung because he placed so much emphasis on the unconscious mind, right? And he famously said, you know, if you don't make your own unconscious mind conscious to yourself, it'll direct your life and you'll just call it fate. So that was really the meat and potatoes of the journey, if you like, delving into the unconscious mind and finding a great deal of hate, resentment, anger, very destructive energy, wanting to destroy things, you know, pyromania, all of those things that I did as a child and answer, why is that there? Where does it come from? And that was the second stage of it.
And then the third stage of it, which if you read the textbooks is called reintegration, but which is now very popularly called post-traumatic growth, which I personally don't like. I, I just don't like it for some reason. It doesn't sit well with me. I think of it more as an integrated process. You know, now that I have healed on so many different fronts and I have so much awareness about how childhood trauma is, you know, my sense of safety is very different to a person who's never been traumatized. Their sense of safety is very different than mine. How do we utilize the integrated process so that we can make the relationship work for both of us? And this is where you can bring in, you know, the Gottman work, which is absolutely brilliant. And you can start at the base by building trust, learning to set boundaries, learning to communicate well, build the walls, start developing a sense of autonomy, create having mutual respect for your partner, and then getting into the apex of the house, which of course is the most challenging, you know, the commitment and the shared passion, and right at the top, most difficult thing to achieve, I think, in, in any relationship is that of emotional intimacy, particularly for a traumatized person, because emotional intimacy pivots on vulnerability. And the whole idea of trauma is, I don't want to be vulnerable, because when I was vulnerable, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me when I was small and helpless. Look what they did to me. So don't ask me to be vulnerable. I'm not going there. And to slowly work towards a place of vulnerability. I think that's the hardest part of the journey. I'm still on that journey. I think I've, I've improved. My wife and I had a joke about it the other day. She said, well, it took you three months to tell me about something that really hurt you. We're now down to three days. So it's progress of a kind. <laughs> You know, whereas it takes it takes a three minutes, you know, it takes me three days, but well, it started off as three months. Well, no, no, it started off as not at all. Yeah, I would just keep it, you know, I would just there was no way I was going to reveal anything that made me feel vulnerable and made me feel un terrified. Yeah. And then we started at three months. And we've slowly worked our way down to three weeks. And now we're at three days. Progress, <laughs> progress Absolutely. of a kind, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's incredible progress. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it's such an insight into how passionate you would be about this topic when, when it's so close to your heart and everything that's happened to you. I think so many people have these realizations so many years after people mm. sort of say to me, Oh, I'm 40 something or I'm 50 something. And I'm just realizing this stuff. It's just not something that we know a lot about, but obviously we're getting the word out there more and more. What, what types of things cause trauma in childhood? What are the main reasons that we get traumatized? Okay, well, you can broadly divide it into three groups. 
okay? There are the big T unavoidable events, you know, the, the floods, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, you know, the American soldiers coming over the hill, the Taliban coming over that hill. There's not really a lot we can do about any of that. So I'll just set that to one side, okay? But I'm gonna come back to that because there's a very interesting aspect to, to trauma that involves this. That's your big T trauma, you know, war veteran, earthquake survivor, natural disasters, so on and so forth. And then there's this small T trauma. Now, these are the things that on the surface of it don't appear to be, you know, don't appear to be perceived as life-threatening. But when you contextualize it, they may be. If, let's say, I were to be picking you up from the supermarket, right? Say so you're at the supermarket, you've done the shopping, and, you know, Dr. Reshi says he's going to come pick you up. But Dr. Reshi happens to be an hour late. How would you be feeling? You'd probably be sitting, standing there. You'd be a bit irritated, I think. You know, you'd probably think, you know, this guy's always late. Thoughts of that, that kind, right? An anxious, yeah. Yeah, anxious. Now replace you with a four-year-old child standing there waiting for mummy to come and pick her up. All the other kids have peeled away. All the teachers have peeled away. All the other parents have peeled away. And you're standing outside a dusty school gate and there's no one, and mummy is nowhere. You have not developed the cognitive faculties that you just adumbrated very well, you know, not a very nice or pleasant experience. That's not what you're saying to yourself. You don't have the ability to say that to yourself yet, right? This is theory of mind. Your brain is telling you, my mummy's disappeared, my world has ended. So to that four-year-old, when mummy finally turns up, I can guarantee you he is going to be absolutely hysterical when mummy turns up. So do you see what I mean? When you put the event in the right context, it can be perceived as extremely threatening for a child to be left by the side of the road for a period of time running into hours he doesn't know where his mother is he doesn't know where his father is he doesn't know how to get hold of any of them he's alone in the world that would be terrifying to that child right so that's your event but what causes the trauma is when in order to placate the hysterical child hysteria by the way is the old name for trauma did you know that no i didn't yes we used to until very recently the old name for trauma was hysteria and it was thought to only affect women and do you know what the treatment for hysteria was no a hysterectomy oh wow that's that's wow. how we treat it that's how we treated traumatized women until fairly recently, wow. forcibly removing their uterus. Gee. Forcibly. Yeah. 
That's I, I'm talking terrifying. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking within living memory. Mm, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this stuff is actually quite important, I'd say. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, and uh, which is why I have such a, a love-hate relationship with Freud, because he noticed that the brave soldiers coming back from the Boer War had exactly the symptoms as these hysterical women. Uh -huh. And that told him instantly, it can't be coming from the uterus, because if it did, these soldiers wouldn't have it because they don't have uterus, right? And together with, there were three key individuals, Pierre Janet, Jean-Martin Charcot, and Sigmund Freud, right? Now, Janet and, and Charcot in particular have nowhere near the status and influence of Freud. If Freud had stood up and said, look, forget about the uterus. This is not a condition that affects women. This is a condition of, the, you know, this is a neuropsychological symptom. It would have carried a lot of weight. It could also have destroyed his career and he didn't take the chance and instead kept the research to himself. And for that, I, I find it very hard to forgive him because how many women suffered as a result of his keeping silent? Judith Herman goes into this very well in a chapter very early on in her book called Trauma and Recovery. If you read that, you really, you really be quite shocked by how Freud was a man of his time. Mm. And he wanted his seat at the top table and he wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize it. Anyway, so anything that causes a child to feel unsafe, but that's the event. That's not what causes the trauma. What causes the trauma is when that hysterical child gets into the car and the stressed mother cannot deal with this child who's screaming and crying and basically backhands him with, a, with the, the back of her hand and says to him, one more sound out of you and you're going to regret it. That's where the trauma happens. Because events like these are unavoidable. Parents will be late. Traffic jams are everywhere. You know, these things are a matter of life. So it's not what happens to us. It's what is done to us that elicits certain changes within us. What I learned on that day was when I'm terrified, don't ask for help because if you do, you're going to get backhanded. Right. Yeah. So if you're terrified, if you're absolutely terrified, no matter how terrified you are, do not ask for help. And that is the, assess, the, the essence of attachment trauma. Or and therefore you're unable to be vulnerable for the rest of your life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So it really comes down to the bond between a child and their parent, doesn't it? What about if you bond with one parent but not the other one? Will that yeah. Will that just lessen the trauma? That's, that's fundamentally to misunderstand how trauma actually works and, and, and what attachment is for in the first place. It's going to, I'm going to have to take a bit of a running leap at this one rather than a standing jump, if you will, if you will allow me to do so. Okay? Sure. Let's, let's go back a little bit into our evolutionary background. Now, attachment behaviors appear with birds. Before that, if you look at fish or frogs or turtles, when they lay their eggs, they don't stick around. They lay them and then they leave. It's only with the emergence of birds that when the eggs are laid, the birds stay with the eggs. And when the eggs hatch, the baby birds cry. And when they cry, the mother bird feeds them. That is the first instance of attachment that we see in nature. It's very important because many people confuse attachment with love. They are not the same thing, right? Attachment is a survival strategy. Love is much more complex a, a discussion of which attachment is a part. But attachment is purely a survival strategy. I'm a helpless chick. I can't hunt for myself. I need my parents to feed me. How do I do that? I cry for food and they feed me. If I don't cry for food, they don't feed me and I die. Simple. Okay. And as you go up the evolutionary chain, you can see that attachment behaviors become more and more and more complex as we evolve into more and more and more complex animals. But the most complex attachment behaviors of all are in human beings, which in a sense sit right at the top of the evolutionary tree. Think about a horse, okay? A horse can run on the first day of its life. A human baby cannot lift its own head on the first day of its life. So when you have such a fragile and frankly, very, very vulnerable infant, you need something very, very powerful, right, for survival to take place. And nature has given us that mechanism through the most powerful neurotransmitter that we possess. And when a baby is born, and the mother or the parental caregiver nurtures that baby, what happens is the baby or the infant's brain floods with endorphins. Endorphin, by the way, is a, is a combination of two words, endogenous and morphine. 
right? So when I say endorphins, what I'm saying is morphine that your body produces, okay? Mm-hmm. We used to think that endorphins were there, you know, to help us deal with pain if we were on a hunt or something. But in 1977, great Estonian neuroscientist Koyak Pangsep proved conclusively that this was completely wrong. The primary purpose of endorphins is for human attachment. That when you nurture a child, when a child turns to an adult caregiver and nurtures that child, the, both the adult caregiver and the child gets a massive hit of endorphins, which makes them want to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that is the mechanism that nature has given us, right? It doesn't have to be a mother. It doesn't have to be a father. It can be an uncle. It can, we've seen it time and time and time and time and time again. You know, dad's in jail, mom's a crackhead, uncles are not interested. But look at Tyson as an example. He found Customato, who was an Italian living up in you know upstate New York had nothing to do with with Tyson just saw a talent in him but also saw the circumstances that he was in and thought well young man if you're going to be selling crack on the streets street corners you're not going to get very far took him out of the environment put him in his house sat him at the same table as all of his white children and said this boy is as good as my son. Tyson's world transforms. He goes from a completely berserk and uncontrollable boy to a disciplined young man who went on to become the heavyweight champion of the world at age 21. And the interesting thing is that Tyson's life unraveled when D'Amato died. Wow. That's how powerful the attachment bond is. I mean, there are some experiments that have that that Yapangsap did that in a way I'm glad he did because there's no ethic ethical committee in any university in the world today that would ever allow these experiments to be conducted. But back then they could pretty much get away with anything, right? So he did something very interesting. He created two fake mummies. He had a whole bunch of newborn rhesus macaques and he created two mummies, right? One mummy was called the nurturing mummy. It was covered with soft fur rugs. It was soft, it was comforting and it had a lamp inside it so it was warm, okay? The other mum was constructed with exactly the same bits of wooden wire but all it had was a milk bottle, was food. And they calculated, and on average, they found that these newborn rhesus macaques spent in excess of 16 hours a day with the nurturing mummy that didn't actually do anything. It was just soft rugs with a, with a light underneath it and less than 55 minutes with the food mummy. And that just tells you the difference between what's important to a newborn and what isn't. Yeah, the food's important, but nowhere near as important as 
the nurturing, the soft, the warmth, the ability to be close to an adult caregiver. And then they did, they thought, well, we'll push the experiment a bit harder. We're going to make these nurturing mothers a bit nasty, okay? But every time the newborn rhesus macaques approach the nurturing mummy, they get a blast of wind. They get pricked by, by needles, you know, really nasty stuff happening. And they thought it would make the newborns just go, this is too much. I'll just go for the food mummy. The opposite happened. The more painful you made it for them to be attached to the nurturing mummy, the more tightly they clung on to those nurturing mothers. Wow. The more difficult, the more painful they added as many. And I'm not going to talk about some of the things they actually did because it's, it's really quite, un <laughs> really quite unethical. And, and, uh, and I, and I, I, you know, Pangs up as a great hero of mine. And this is one of the things that, that I find deeply regrettable about him in the quest for knowledge where he would use electric shocks and things like that. I, it's just, just very hard to see one's heroes uh, dragged down in this way. But, but there were things that he did, right, to prove his point, which was, I could make these nurturing mummies really, really unpleasant. And the newborn rhesus macaques would cling on to them even more tightly. Wow. And the thing about, about research is that he used primates that were closest to us in the evolutionary chain, which is why his research, I think, is exceptionally important in understanding why attachment is so important. So going back to your question, even if you have mum and dad who can't provide it, grandma can stand, step in and pick up the flag. You know, I have a friend, a fellow psychologist, for whom that was the exact situation. His parents and siblings were all killed in a car crash age nine. And his grandparents raised him. He has no trauma. Unlike me, he has absolutely no trauma. And I remember asking him why he thought that. And the answer he gave me, and I quote him verbatim, was because my grandmother gave me the space to be angry, you know? Yeah. And circling right back to where we started, the big T traumas, the Taliban, the war zones, the Ukraine, stuff like that. I've been very privileged to work with some young women who had to be evacuated because they'd actively worked with agencies connected to the Americans and they were at the top of the Taliban hit list. And one of these women worked with me. I was not allowed to know her real name, where she was, her location, anything like that. But she told me a story that I will never forget because I remember working with her and thinking to myself, how is it that you don't show any signs of attachment trauma at all? You know, because I studied her very, very carefully. She was a very bright young woman. She was 26 years old. She'd been abroad on scholarships and everything under the Pax Americana, spoke perfect English, 
So it, it allowed me to assess her very, very, very carefully using psychometrics, using a whole variety of methods. This woman did not have childhood trauma and I could not explain it. And then one day she told me the story. She said that they were growing up in a refugee camp on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And if you were Afghani, you were looked down upon because you were poor, you were a refugee, you know, and she was bullied in the schools and so on and so forth. But she said one day the Afghani man, the family next door to theirs, he, he was 38 or 39 years old, had a heart attack or a stroke. They don't know which one, but he's just basically just dropped dead. Okay. Now you had a woman with five children and no husband. And she says her dad went into the garage, got out a sledgehammer, smashed the wall down between that woman's house and his, walked into the house and said to the woman, you are now my daughter and your children are now my grandchildren. Wow. And walked back and that was it. You know, and so when she told me that story, it gave me a very, it was an aha moment for me, right? Where those bonds exist, you know, when your husband drops dead and the neighbor smashes the wall down and say, you will be cared for, you will not be abandoned. Yeah. That is the reason why this young woman does not have attachment trauma because she grew up in those circumstances. It was a very powerful lesson for me because that was only quite recently that I had the privilege to work with this woman. And with the other Afghani women that I that I work with, again, you know, I would when this came to light, I would ask them and all of them told gave me the same answer. It was the same answer. If anything happened to anyone, somebody would step in and no one doubted that that would happen. They had absolutely no doubt that somebody would swoop in and take care of them. Mm. And that is why they don't have trauma. Someone would create the space for them to be angry. Someone would create the space for them to be children and protect them. Yeah. That's incredible, yeah. incredible gift. And wouldn't it be great if we could actually do that for everybody else? <laughs> you know, in the world, it's, there's just so many people who are completely alone and have no support and haven't had it their whole well, life, you know, so. Yeah. If you read Emil Durkheim's, Emil Durkheim, I think Emil Durkheim and W.B. Du Bois, I think are the two greatest sociologists because they didn't, do it from ivory towers they could have sent out interns with questionnaires but they didn't do that they went out themselves and sat down with people uh, in the case of wb du bois when he wrote the work for which he's most well known the philadelphia negro he interviewed 1400 negro families in philadelphia in just the philadelphia district and Durkheim is the same. When he wrote his book on suicide, he interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of families where there had been suicide to try and understand what is going on. 
And it was Durkheim that coined the term anime, which when you look at it is disconnection, despair, alienation, right? It's all of the complete opposite components that this young Afghani woman had. This young Afghani woman had connectedness. She had people around her who cared. She had the ability to be present because of the people that cared about her. She had a sense of agency. She had an environment that was nurturing. On the other hand, in our modern worlds, can we honestly say that we have environments that are nurturing? Durkheim explicitly says that when the social bonds, the fabric that give us our sense of identity, it's why Karl Marx spent so much time talking about work, because work is not just the job. It's not just you go there, you do your job, you, you get your money, you go home. It's part of who you are. It's part of where you fit in the hierarchy. It's part of your pride as an individual. It's part of, you know, almost everything from how you feel about yourself to where you fit in the community to what role you're expected to play. Almost everything depends on these social bonds. And when you completely fracture it and you have these isolated nuclear families, then those bonds are completely fractured yeah. and you will, you will have either suicide on a societal level, which he felt was possible, take a human being, disconnect him from anything that's meaningful to him, alienate him, push him into a corner, push him into despair and give him no respite and isolate him. He will either kill himself immediately or he will kill himself slowly killing himself immediately well we know what that looks like okay killing himself slowly will be opioids gambling drugs alcohol what is what is that if not a slow suicide yeah it's a slow Absolutely. suicide you know yeah yeah interesting isn't it so how do you think that childhood trauma affects our lifespan and our quality of life? Well, that question was unequivocally answered in 1998 through the Adverse Childhood Experiences study by the great Dr. Vince Folletti. In the mid-1980s, Kaiser Permanente in particular discovered that they were paying out larger and larger sums of money for obesity-related illnesses. And they didn't like it because they were an insurance company and they didn't like paying out money. Mm. So they said, well, we, we need to figure out a way so that we don't have to pay out this money. So they brought on board one of their finest physicians, a man named Vincent Folletti, Dr. Vincent Folletti, and gave him the project and said, we need you to get to the root of this problem. We need you to solve it so that we don't have to pay out these hundreds of millions of dollars that we're currently paying out. So he says, all right, fine, we'll do that. So he assembles a crack team of nutritionists and dietitians and you know, exercise specialists and stuff like that. 
and gets very, very large sample size because they're pouring a lot of money into this, thousands of people. And it's a, it's a wildly successful. All of these people lose massive amounts of weight. They all get super healthy, you know, and the study is acclaimed as a success, except there's one problem. As soon as the study was over, all of the participants put the weight straight back on. Now that's no good to Kaiser Permanente because, you know, yeah, okay, fine. You got them to get the weight off, but you need to get them to keep the weight off because if they don't keep the weight off, we'll still have to pay. So go back and do it again. And Folletti, who was not, who really was not used to failure, got a little disgruntled, I think, and he did just what for a doctor was a completely unthinkable thing. You know, he decided to actually talk to his patients, and uh, he he actually said to one in you know in complete exasperation, clearly you do not have any trouble losing weight. You look better, you're healthier, you're happier, you know, everything is better. So why on earth do you put it all back on when the study is over? And the woman without missing a heartbeat, I believe her name was Susan, without missing a heartbeat just said, because I know that if I look like this, then nobody will ever do to me what Uncle Harry did to me when I was 14. Oh, wow. Mm. And that was Folletti's light bulb moment. And he went back into the office and he said, guys, I think we've been barking up the wrong tree or whichever phrase you have. But he thought, no, this, this, this can't be right. This is an anomaly. But he thought, well, let's check it anyway. So he, he put in questionnaires about, you know, any kind of sexual assault, rape, anything that fit within the clinical definition, sent out all his people right interview all the all of the test subjects again people they've been working with five five years came back and do you know what the percentage of people when they came back with the results when they tabulated how many people tested positive for early life sexual trauma right do you know what that percentage was no 100 a hundred oh. out of a hundred women tested positive wow that was all women it was all women mm. it was all women and then they expanded the study over onto men and they found that obesity and they expanded it from obesity to autoimmune illnesses and then they got more funding because he, by that point, he'd been, you know, the CDC got very interested in his study. So they sent Dr. Bob Ander, who, is the, who at the time was the head of the CDC, over to assist him. And with that came a great chunk of money. So they were able to double the size of the study. And by the time they finished, I mean, we're talking about a 17,000 people study, huge study, right? And so they were able to massively expand it and not just look at obesity. They were able to look at addiction. They were able to look at autoimmune illnesses. They were able to look at cancer. They were able to look at heart disease. And what they discovered just absolutely astonished them. That if you had 
these adverse childhood experiences, right, of which sexual abuse is one, there are 10. If you have them, there is a dose response relationship between the number of childhood traumas you have and how sick you will get later on in your life. Dose response meaning the more ACEs you have, the more sick you become. Yeah. If you have one, you'll get this sick. If you have two, you'll get this much more sick. If you have three, you'll get this much more sick. If you have four, you'll get this much more sick. And what was very, very interesting about that research was he said, if you have seven or more ACEs, the chances of you becoming an intravenous drug addict goes up by 4,600%. And that is the reason why a doctor like me from an upper middle class background who went to boarding school and went to the finest universities ended up as a street junkie because I had more than seven aces. And the answer just dropped in my lap and there it was. Wow. Wow. Those statistics are crazy, aren't they? When, when did you say yeah. this was, dis- when were these? Yeah. This study, mm. this study was first published in 1998. It has right. since been replicated. If I'm not mistaken, it has been replicated over a hundred times. The results are consistently the same. And in the medical world, the, the gold standard, if you like, the gold standard for research is called the Cochrane database, right? Nothing makes it into the Cochrane library, the Cochrane database, unless it is of the absolute highest standard. This research is in the Cochrane database. It's not an argument anymore. Yeah. And this information is really only what, 25 years old. So this is why we're really only just starting to figure these things out and not many people really know a lot about it. Right. No. And so obviously can, can you just tell us what the 10 aces are for the people listening? Well, I would like to do that, but it's, it's in my book. And oh, okay. if I, yeah. And if I did, it would be a spoiler. Oh, okay. it would be a spoiler. Yeah. Because what I've done is, is I've put the aces, the questionnaire there. Okay. And then I've put how you score yourself at the end of it. If I were to tell you the aces now, okay. then people would start scoring themselves yep. and it's, 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 it's going to spoil it for them. So, so just to, just to repeat, just to make it very clear in, in my book, there is only one appendix and the appendix is the original ACE questionnaire. Okay. I encourage every single person to do that questionnaire and the scoring system for how you score that questionnaire is fully explained and attached to the appendix. Mm-hmm. I would like people to do it for themselves rather than me sit here and say it's one, because I can, if you want, I can just recite them. Yeah. But I feel if I did that, I was robbing them of the, the power, the mm. exploration of doing it for themselves. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? The 
Because I think there are people that don't really believe that childhood trauma leads to physical unwellness and it's just so oh. clear that, that that happens. But how does that actually happen? Yeah. Well, the first thing you have to understand is that the, that the systems in the body, and in this case, we're talking about two specific ones, the neurological and the immunological. So the neurological is responsible for our ability to think, make decisions, fight or flight, write books, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's, that's neuroscience, how the brain works, how we're able to do things. And then you've got the immunological system, which is responsible for fighting off infections, for keeping the body healthy, for, you know, making sure that whatever's not supposed to be there isn't there and from making sure that everything's on an even keel. Now, when I was at medical school, I was taught that, and the phrase that was used was that the neurological system was immunoprivileged. And what that meant was that no immune cells could cross the blood brain barrier and enter the neurological system. Hence the term immunoprivileged. Very, very recently, I think this is about eight years ago, a professor from Cambridge University, Professor Edward Bullmore, if this isn't too rude, I don't know if this is a family show, essentially proved that it was complete bullshit, <laughs> that not only can immune cells cross the blood-brain barrier, but they can cross in fantastically large numbers, okay, yeah? So the neurological system is responsible for our moods, our ability to cope with anxiety. All of these have their origins in the neurological system. So if you have a person who has a neurological system that is stressed, say they're being bullied, right? You know, and this is where the essence of complex trauma comes into it. Calling somebody a racist slur once, you know, might hurt, but it's unlikely to cause permanent long-term damage, okay? But if you do it again and again and again and again, the three words that Van der Kolk and Courtois keep talking about is prolonged, repetitive, and cumulative. Keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Racial slur after racial slur after racial slur after racial slur in the workplace, in the pub, in the restaurant, in the car. You know, if you're a black guy driving a car, you're the one who gets pulled over by the police officer. If it's consistently done in this way and these three conditions are fulfilled, eventually, you will see the same constellation of trauma symptoms that you would in a war veteran. And that is the definition of complex trauma. So the answer to your question is yes. Yes, you would. And overthinking, that's a part of, that's a part of trauma as well, isn't it? Yep, it's called what we what we refer to as intrusive recollecting so 
nightmares, flashbacks, things going round and round and round and round and round in your head. And the most interesting thing that I've discovered about intrusive recollecting with the people I work with is that the harder they try to make it stop, the worse it appears to get. So they, they you know, engage in every methodology they can to try and stop themselves having these intrusive recollecting. But mm. the harder they try, the worse it seems to get, you know. So that's one of the one of the very interesting aspects of trauma that I, I really enjoy treating. Because to suddenly break that that broken record in their head, suddenly to see them freed of that is very very rewarding moment yeah. in clinical practice. And what what's happening to our brain when we dissociate? Well, what's happening to our brains is that we have three major circuits in our brain that is responsible for mood regulation. We have the cognitive control network, which is situated roughly right at the front of your brain on the left side. That's the first part. We have the limbic system, which is if you put two fingers on your forehead, two fingers on the side of your temple, where the lines of your fingers intersect, that's where your limbic system is. That's where your emotions are generated. And we have an autonoetic or an, or an autobiographical branch, which is memory. And those are kept in deep in the brain into horse they're shaped like a horseshoe i wonder if people know what a horseshoe is these days you know i mean how many people have read horses right road mm. horses but a horseshoe is, is it's kind of like a, a shape like that and hippocampus hippocampus is the latin word for horseshoe so you've got these two horseshoes in your brain okay and yeah. that's where all your memories are stored now it's the interaction of these three networks that really determines yeah so to answer your question if you simply sit back and think and reflect then you are in a task negative non-goal-directed space you're simply thinking and reflecting and when you do that that's when all of your emotions come up all of your emotions come up because i mean you You'll notice this in your own life, okay? Let's say you're at work and you're anxious about something, okay? The minute you start doing something about it, it doesn't eradicate your anxiety, but it immediately puts a break on it. Hmm. Ever noticed that? Yeah. Right? If you're anxious about exams, if you're anxious about a, a project you need to hand in, the minute you start doing something about it, the anxiety goes down. Doesn't matter what you do, but the minute you start doing something, it's like somebody slammed a brake on the anxiety. And that is this bit of your brain, the cognitive control network, because it has a branch that goes straight to the limbic system and it inhibits, it's an inhibitory mechanism. It's like putting the brake on a car, right? And that part of your brain is task positive and it's goal directed. Task positive as in 
I know what the task is and goal directed as in I'm directed towards fulfilling that goal. And as long as you're doing that, that break stays there. But the minute you stop and you switch to the other network, the hippocampi network, which is autonoetic, it is reflective, it's not task positive, it's not goal directed, that break that was there now gets taken off. And that's a process we call disinhibition. Inhibition that's removed. And so now all the feelings can come up, which is why in people who have anxiety disorders, the best way to guarantee that your anxiety gets worse is to do nothing. Lie on the couch and just think about it. I guarantee you it'll get worse. Guarantee it. Mm. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Absolutely. For somebody who's in this sort of point of just realizing that they may have experienced trauma, what would you suggest were the first steps for them to start on this journey of healing? I think the first step always has to be to speak to a professional. You know, someone, if you can get to a professional who is specifically trauma trained, that really is your best option because they can do an assessment right there. They know exactly what they're looking for, right? But most counseling professionals today are what we call trauma informed. So they may not have the specific training in say EMDR or whatever to actually treat the trauma, but they had enough training to kind of recognize, okay, this belongs to CAT7 under trauma and stress related disorders. I recognize the pattern and they can at least refer you on to the right person. Mm -hmm. That I would say would be the first and the critical healthy step to take. Find the right person. Yeah, that's good advice. So, Rishi, you've written a new book on trauma. Can you tell us what your book is called and what is unique about this book as opposed to other books on trauma? Yes. Well, the title of the book is A Beginner's Guide to Trauma and the subtitle is Understanding the Toxic Effects of the Disorders of Extreme Stress. So when I started on my journey as a trauma therapist, right, when I was at university studying medicine, if you studied anatomy, say, you know, you had this book called Graves Anatomy in three volumes, right? Everything you need to know about anatomy in one place. You didn't have to go anywhere else. So when I started learning about trauma, I was dismayed to find that you didn't have the Gray's anatomy equivalent of trauma. So I had to find it from here and there. And, you know, so what I've essentially done is I've created the book that I would have wanted as a person who was completely new to the subject of trauma. It's the book that I would have wanted to read. It's the book that marries hard science but written in such a way that is accessible, stripped of its jargon as much as possible. What I wanted to do was create something different because I'm, yes, I am the expert and I am the professional, but I am also the victim. 
So I'm giving you the signs, but I'm giving you the signs through stories, one of which is my own. And so I'm trying to tell the story of trauma through the signs, through the stories of the people I've worked with and my own story. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. And of course, that's going to help so many people because it's really relating to those stories, isn't it, where people get so much out of hearing other people's experiences. So we'll put the link to the book in the show notes. And is there anything else you want to tell us about the book or the work that you're doing, where people can find you? Well, they can find me simply, my, my company is called Living Free. So they can find me on livingfree.today. And, you know, everything about me is on there. Plenty of videos. If you want to know about any particular kind of trauma. And if you want to get in touch with us, you know, the, the office number, the emails, they're all up there. So if you're interested in the work that we're doing and if you're interested in purchasing the book when it drops on the 9th of september www.livingfree.today so yes please do go and grab your copy of the book the links are in the show notes and the website address is there too reshi this has been such an informative chat i think your new book sounds amazing and i wish you so much luck with that thank you so much for sharing so much great information on trauma today it's been really amazing to connect with you thank you very much for having me on your show dawn and perhaps i look forward to speaking to you on another subject at another time thank you very much thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at mybigloveproject and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique, your journey is unique, and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious, and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.